yeah, I walked into her apartment the first year that we were dating, and there's this this weird looking poster thing that was like a an extra big you know piece of paper that had been printed out. And I just walked in there, and in my typical just blunt trying to crack a joke fashion, I was like, "What is this hideous piece of garbage?" <laughs> and the diner was like, "That's my final for my illustration class. I made this. I made this." <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 312 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast, Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm dehydrated. I'm Sam and I'm holding back a sneeze. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is May 20th, 2021. Dunk on everyone. And before we get started, we have a warning there's going to be profanity in this show. And uh, we'd also like to thank our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net. Uh, thank you very much for supporting the podcast. I see Sam just like, oh, yeah, his grabbing his, his nose. You know, uh, it's just like, it just sits there, like right in the, it's just like, come, it's just in the front of your face and you can't get it to just. I was like, I, I'm, I'm going through the intro and I'm just like waiting, just waiting for this. Just, I'm a time bomb, man. I'm a wild card today. sneeze blast. Are you good? I mean, you just, you just keep on sailing. Let's go. Now that we've talked about it, then once once it finally comes, do we leave it in? Or, or do we have, have Patrick take point. it out? I'll scream as loud as humanly possible. Yeah, one of those, just, you know, some people do that where they have almost like a primal death scream when they sneeze. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like as you get older, your sneezes become more scream-like. I think it's because it's the one moment where everyone kind of allows you to, like, release your emotional angst. <laughs> it know? also could just be because, like, yeah, it's like there's a whole gazoontite, which is something about a ghost yep. or whatever, right? So it could be just as you get older, the ghost is getting closer to the surface. Mm, you know? yeah. So Ooh, it's, yeah. it screams get louder. Mm-hmm. Is that what gazoontite means? It's something about a ghost. Something about a ghost? I don't okay. know. Well, because uh, I think, uh, I think well, height is, like, because it's German for ghost, right? I think Geist is Geist. Oh, Geist. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but That's I like the theory. I think we should ghost, stick to though. Gesund Geist. Uh, all right, so as far as stuff to talk about this week, um, not a lot of sort of like big or hilarious things happened, except we do want to talk a little bit about sort of the progress of the Crashlands 2 buildings. So we've, we've talked <laughs> squinting around. <laughs> <laughs> You get you, Oh yeah, there it is. Oh, I, <laughs> it was a triple. Carry I feel on, like we right gotta. Back. I feel like we gotta keep that. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll just keep that. Seth, we'll just keep going. Sam's gonna go take care of whatever gotta, flew out of his face, and yeah, uh, we gotta keep that on the episode. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so first of all, congrats to Sam for birthing a beautiful baby. Uh, sneeze. Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was spectacular. Uh, so. I want to talk a little bit about the buildings in Crashlands 2. And last week, I think, or a couple weeks ago, we were talking about kind of how we were figuring out the problems with Crashlands 2 buildings. Um, and sort of the complication of allowing the player to make a building of any shape and then trying to figure out what is indoors and what's outdoors. And answering some weird questions like, what's a porch? And is a porch indoors or is, is it, it outdoors? Is it a room? What's a room? What's a building? All that stuff. Uh, well, we've got there. We've got it all. It's all there. Um, and we have a really, really cool system now where, where as soon as you enclose a space, meaning you've, you know, you've covered all the floors and you have walls you know, wrapped around the whole thing, um, then the game instantly knows, hey, this is, a, this is a building. And when you leave build mode, then there's a roof on top of it now. Mm-hmm. It actually has a roof, and it, it actually is a, it is a building. It looks like a right now we've got this cool kind of little like log cabin kind of a look. Uh, but we'll be able to have lots of different you know styles of building and stuff. Um, and at first we had a big conversation about how the roof was going to get there, and we had a whole plan for like trying to come up with some like roof editor kind of a thing. Um, but there was something kind of magic about. Finishing your building and then like flipping out of the build mode and then just there's a roof. Right. right? Yeah. You complete um, the last wall segment and you leave. Yeah. It's like a little it's like a little prize for you for for completing your building. Um and it's also a really nice indicator because it's it's just unambiguously is the case if you, you know, leave build mode and there's a roof on your house that you You did it now. You it's did there. It. It's an enclo- yeah. it's an enclosed space. It's a building now, it's a room now, it's all of those things. Yeah. Um, and we also have the roofs. Uh, the roofs are set up so that as you walk into the building, uh, 
like so when, when I first got this up and running, you'd walk into the building and the roofs would just kind of disappear so you could see into the building. And I showed it to Adam and uh, Adam was it just did like, not spark joy. Yeah, Adam was just like, uh, could this not just boringly disappear? Could it, you know, do something? Um, and so I, I, I was like, yeah, I mean, it'll take a couple hours. But it's one of those, it's like we talked about water a while back, how like it's a visual thing that doesn't change gameplay, um, but it matters. But it changes a lot, the right? experience. Yeah. And so we have it now so that as you, as you enter a building, each of the individual roof pieces kind of flies away, but they kind of fly away at different speeds. So you like see the roof kind of break apart and fly into the sky. It's kind of like um, an explosion of Legos or something. Yeah. yeah. And when you, when you leave the building, then the roof kind of like, whoosh, kind of like slides back into place one piece at a time. Um, and it just has this really cool feeling. We sent over the QA team. We didn't tell the QA team that we were doing this. We just like deployed it to them, you know? And, uh, and they were just like, oh my God. I've just been walking into and out of buildings for the past hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's even to, to the see point the roof move. There's yeah. like, cause it's got the little subtle detail too, where you start walking into a building and it starts animating all the tiles up, you know, and then you, and then you're like, wait, never mind. And you leave. And then they don't keep going and then later come back. They just stop going up and then come back down, you know? Yeah. The, so, the animation is dynamic. So it plays from where the, each tile is. Yeah. Um, it just feels really good. So, so that's been pretty fun. Um, and I think what's kind of been interesting about it is, and this is something we've been kind of struggling with with the buildings in general, which is depth sorting in an isometric game like this is a really hard problem. And nobody's really solved it um, in a way that modern computers can handle. How would you explain of, depth sorting to someone so who depth sorting, know what that is? Depth sorting is – so if you're thinking about a 3D game, uh, things have geometry and they exist as like shapes in a space, Right. And so you have a, a camera that's looking at the objects and you could, for example, have like a big like beach ball in the foreground and then like a cube in the background, right? And you'll see the beach ball just in front of the, the cube, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just – that's a consequence of how 3D uh, uh, visuals are yeah, rendered. The question of what's in front of what is really easy to answer right? relative to um, the camera. And, yeah, and so what's happening there is actually the beach ball – is just sort of blocking the view of the of part of the cube, right? And interestingly, in 3D, the beach ball can kind of like go next to the cube and then be partially inside of the cube, right? So you would see like part of the cube and part of the beach ball, right? And that's that's called clipping, and you see that in, in 3D games all the time. Like if you've ever played Ark, you know, you're familiar with this, which is Maybe there's a big old stegosaurus walking past your house, and then it suddenly its tail is just like th- through your wall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's because it's because three D objects are made up of a large number of little triangles that can all like go through each other in different ways, and the camera just kind of shows whatever it sees. Well, it's also right? there's a collision mask problem there, right? Because 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 that tail actually is in front of that wall, so that's a, that's actually a different problem, right? Because the right. tail clipped through because it didn't properly collide. So it was able to go all the way through the wall. And now you're looking at it, but then the wall appears. And then that includes the rest of the right. dinosaur, right? But what's, but what's kind of interesting about 3D is that the tail is made up of lots of tiny little pictures, tiny little triangles, okay, uh, that are all like living in the world. But in 2D, in a, in a game like Crashlands 2 or like a, all of our games, um, things do not have 3D geometry. They're just a, a flat picture. So if I'm standing next to something um, and I'm like holding an axe and the axe or like a spear and it's like really long, right? Then my character is a flat piece of paper and that spear and everything is like drawn exactly in the same sort of like order on the screen. And so it wouldn't be the case that like, that like I could be behind something, but my spear would be protruding in front of something like you would see in a 3D game. It's all one flat piece. And so like if we have a, a rock or a wall or whatever, all those things are just totally flat and they have one depth in the yeah. world. They're, so, so like the bigger and more complicated the geometry looks, right? Because you, you draw a thing as if it's a 3D thing, right? So like yeah. Sam's drawing all these cool rocks and things and these little pit, like he's drawing all these cool structures, right? Uh, or these cool but creatures. But they're still just flat images. But they're still flat. Mm-hmm. And so the more 3D they look, then the more problems you start to run into when when it comes into expectations of what gets drawn on top of what. Right. If anybody's, um, I mean, if anybody listening has made a PowerPoint before, 
you've actually dealt with this depth sorting problem, which is the whole like sending things to the back, sending bringing things to the front, like that layering yeah, right. of yeah. the pieces to know what is in front of what. And when you get on an isometric grid, you basically have this issue where taking just the one point associated with like a rock or a wall, you only get one one of those depth points, but the thing is drawn to look like it has it's taking up more multiple depth points. Essentially, like it sort of you know exists going back into space because that's what a good you know a good illusion of depth presents. And so you have to you have to somehow solve this problem, or as is the case with actually most games, decide where at what point do you stop just caring? Yeah, yeah you well, can't just really solve it. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you could solve it with infinite computing power. Yes, you yes. know. Um, but a game that needs to run on you know a Nintendo Switch or an Xbox or whatever, like doesn't have infinite computing power, right? And so, um, and, and you have to kind of decide, like, do we want, so like in the case of Crash Ends 2, the fact that we have these roofs, the roofs live in the world and the roofs have a certain height to them, right? Like they're, they are as tall as they are. And there may be some things in the world, maybe creatures or projectiles that move around that actually go higher than a roof tile. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that, if that thing is inside of a building, you may sometimes actually see it poke through the roof mm-hmm. <laughs> temporarily. And we have, we have ways to try to mitigate that, um, but it's still going to happen. Or maybe you have like a really long weapon and you're running along like a wall. And sometimes your wall will actually like, or your, your weapon will like poke between two of the walls just because of depth sorting. Um, but again, like the only way for us to not have that happen would be to always have really short weapons mm-hmm. and to aggressively prevent the player from getting close enough to the wall to allow that to happen, right? Uh, so instead, we just say, fuck it. It's better to have a well-optimized game that has a lot of freedom for what the player can do and a lot of cool-looking weapons of a variety of sizes that than has a to – Then mm-hmm. it has like – sometimes there's going to be a little bit of jank, but it's cool. Like we can do cool things because we're okay with the, the jank. Yeah, well, and Sam mentioned Arc right. early on, or, or Seth did when we were talking about the clipping problem, yeah. right? And like Arc is, is, a, is a stellar example of this. It's, it is a hilariously janky game. Um, oh yeah things are just clipping constantly the AI is all wonky right but if you look at the problems that they were trying to solve they wanted to have dinosaurs with all these different interesting behaviors of every dinosaurs scale imaginable are big and weirdly shaped and yeah. some, of them, some of them are underwater you know and then, and they and they wanted to have then on top of that a crafting game where you can build rafts that go on the water where you can build structures that enclose arbitrary amounts of space right and that's on top of a complex 3d geometry of the world right so now like you're trying to build on random angles and there are creatures that are trying to climb mountains you know like the whole thing is an unoptimizable shit show in terms yep. of the problem scale right and it's <laughs> a good way the, to put it that's a technical term yeah and the, and the designers yeah. of arc uh, astutely recognized that if people could tame and ride dinosaurs then they would put up with a fuckload of jank. And so they could just say, you know what? We're going to have this brontosaurus be literally so big that when you stand next to it, it looks like you're standing next to what a real brontosaurus mm-hmm. is like, right? And like, and when I experienced this for the first time in the game, it was like, it, for some reason, it just like come to our house, you know? And, uh, and it's just like stomping on the ground. The whole world is shaking just constantly. It's kind of stuck because it's like in the spot it got to. It doesn't it can't pathfind its way out easily because it's too big, you know? And it's, and it's like tail is constantly just in a mountain. And, uh, and, and, and so it's like, it's really janky, but there's a fucking brontosaurus right there. Yep. You know, there's just a fucking like, brontosaurus. It's, it's fucking cool. Yeah. yeah you and I remember the jank nearly as much as, as players don't see the jank nearly as much as the developers do. Well, and even, and even well, when they do though, it's, it's, it's that, it's always that trade-off question of, 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 if the player feels like it makes sense and they get it, right? Because I think I think something like because they haven't seen this sort of stuff in games really. It's like seeing giant things, right? Like giant dinosaurs moving around, um, but they have seen a lot of clipping in games because it's a it's a constant problem. And uh, oh yeah, <laughs> and they they get like they they've they've already like they kind of understand that that's a thing. And when they see it in this context, it feels like it just makes sense, right? And so so they see it, but they also are going to give a lot of. Uh, a lot of freedom to the mm-hmm. creators of the game to have to have that part of the jank in the experience, right? Um, and so, so the, the, the question I think to me this is one of the most fun things about about game development. It's also the hard thing, right? Is that this is where this is where the technical the technical part meets the art part meets the marketing part. Like everything is now intersecting in this in the space where you know. So there's talking about how like oh it's like cool to have these roofs. Like we want to have these here. They don't do anything. 
right? They don't do anything at all, but they, but they do change the player experience in a significant enough way that it makes us have to ask, okay, what other parts of the game do we have to, uh, to limit or allow jank into? And then, and we always still want to limit the amount of jank. So we have to do something. There's always some, something you have to give up even if you want to allow some in there. Right. So even though this is purely cosmetic, Right, it's just too cool to not have it. It's too cool mm-hmm. to not have. It's, it's just too like, cool. Yeah, well, because, because, no, because it's games not, are it's not purely cosmetic. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, because games are yeah. an experienced good, and yeah. and things that are cosmetic, as Sam is noting, right, uh, are functional in the context of a game. And it's really easy to forget that, you know, where you're just like, oh, but I really want these weapons to be huge, so we we can't have roofs, right? Instead of saying, oh, maybe in the house, like we'll shrink weapons a little or some shit, right? Like there's 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 always some middle ground you can find that's going to add some amount of jank. But the question is, what are you prioritizing when you're, yeah, or you decisions? just leave the weapons huge and you know what they're just going through walls, yeah, right? And then you have your, but you can also your dinosaurs, you know, you just say, but also you can just do a thing where like, oh, you go indoors, boom, your weapon sheaths on your back now. Because, you know, you're in the house and that's just yep. polite, mm-hmm. right? So, <laughs> yep. uh, so there, there's a lot of kind of things you can do to just sort of like mitigate the jank. But um, this is also a fun exercise if you're – because I know many of our listeners are hobbyist game devs or just really into games. Um, next time you're playing a game, any game, just kind of look out for jank, right? And then try to figure out why why is this janky, you know? Because there's a, there's a jank trade-off. There's a jank trade-off. Right? Somebody, yeah, somebody on the dev team thought like – there's this really, really cool thing we want to have, and we kind of can't have it without this side effect of jank. Mm-hmm. You know, it's as with any any you know drugs you take, right? Like you're gonna get there's gonna be something good that happens, but also you know you're gonna get itchy or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's no there's, there's almost no such thing as a pure win, and I think actually it's, this does signify a bit of a shift in our design philosophy because we used to go above and beyond to try to get away from those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it, it kind of reminds me a perfect me of, example, right? And Crashlands, everything is the size of a tile for exactly. Everything is one tile. Mm-hmm. Everything's one tile. Um, and that does mean that like you see a tree and it's the same size as you and you see a creature and it's the same size as the tree. And you, you see like a shrub, which is also the same size as a tree. Um, and it creates the, like the feeling of a, of a game world, but it doesn't create the feeling of a world. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we're, we're 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 trying to we're trying to embrace the jank a little bit and just be be okay with having that in order to get cooler features. Into but the yeah, game. it's basically prioritizing the actual play experience over the precision of the gameplay, right? The yeah, precision of what's shown to a player. Exactly, because um, at a certain point, a certain point doesn't matter. There was a a, a guy here in St. Louis who gave a, a talk, uh, George Lippert, mm-hmm. and I remember one really distinct thing where he was talking about, it was just a short little talk where he was talking about like what matters when you're making a game. And he had this really insightful moment where he was talking about how a lot of people were like, let's say you're making a pixel art ghost. Okay. And you may spend a lot of time creating the different animation frames for this ghost, right. And trying to make it like look correct in all poses and make different versions of it, like flipped left and right. Um, and, And you may spend days and days and days making this ghost. But in the context of the game, it may be the case that that the player just encounters like 20 of these ghosts at a time and gets mauled by them, right? So in that context, the player's literally just saying, oh, shit, that's a lot of ghosts, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's it. Uh, there's, no, there's no need to go so deep and so far into trying to solve every little like imperfection in the ghosts if the, mm-hmm. if the purpose of the ghosts is to just create a feeling of being overwhelmed, Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have to think about what's the actual feeling that you're creating and is it okay for you to kind of like not go for pure perfection? Yeah, how that. Do you get that? Well, I think your know, crashing yeah. is also an example of that. That's kind of fun, which is the, what's the thing that sticks to your face makes you run fast, whatever that, uh, the, f- the face huggers, the, the face, face huggers, huggers you know? and the ball. Is, yeah. I don't even think those have, I think those just appear on your face, right? Like you break a thing and they, they travel, your face. They, they basically travel from the ground and just like slap onto your face. But, it's, but it's they just go, one, it's one sprite, right? They're just like. Yeah, it's one sprite that we just rotate and we just stick it on there. Yeah, because then you can get more of them, and they and they they keep sticking on to each other. Yeah, and uh, but it happens basically. It happens so fast you can't tell. Like it's like you. So you know, I I didn't know if the thing was animated. Like as it's coming out, like doing stuff. It's like a it's like maybe the twentieth of a second that like flies onto your face. It takes no time at all because it's the same deal. It's like you're just like oh shit, I'm really fast now. Like there's a thing on my face, right? And the, the the moment before that where it came out of the you know came out of a little pot and sucked onto your face. 
uh, you barely noticed, right? And it doesn't matter because it's that next moment where it's now on you that captures all of your attention. Oh, those things are so hilarious. I, I love how like when you break one of those little bug sacks and mm-hmm. then you see the little purple face hugger flat, you're like, oh, because you know it's, it's, <laughs> you know it's about, it's about to slap onto your boost. face and then you get that speed boost. I think we have a little tooltip that pops up. It's like face hugger panic mode activated. Or <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. Uh, so anyways, uh, so that, that's kind of where things are with Crash Ends 2. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's really it's coming along. I actually do like that he has a buff. Like, like a, if a buff appeared, you know, up in the top right, that's like face hugger panic, and it's just like a like fast boots, you know. Mm-hmm. That's what we've got. Yeah. Well, I think it just gives you a sprint, but then we just have like a little tooltip that pops right, right, up. Right. But, uh, all right, let's get on to some questions. These questions come from our listeners over at podcast.bscotch.net. The highest upvoted question comes from Mal Rampa Kimakwampa, who says. That's good. Uh, who says, whenever I work on a project and find a hook or idea that seems fun and potentially interesting to explore, I instantly lose interest in the project. It's like mm-hmm. some performative imposter syndrome where if I finish it, then someone somewhere might actually see it and play it and then tell me their thoughts. When you first started making games, did you have this kind of anxiety? And if so, how did you overcome it? That's interesting. I think uh, I think the I guess my, my initial response is more about the nature of, of the work itself. Like what's actually fun about making games, which is oftentimes figuring out what exactly that set of things in the game's design are that create that hook. That's like one of the most challenging and rewarding parts. And so actually where I thought this was going was more so like once you figure that out, it's for me, it's oftentimes mostly about losing steam after that because it's like the really interesting problem is solved and now it's just a bunch of work to go like – do it. No, yeah, um, this sounds more like self-handicapping. Yes. Yeah, which is, is actually, this is a pretty common thing for any creative discipline. The uh, the whole idea that, you know, that as you, you start to imagine a thing you want to make, so game, website, novel, whatever, right? And then you start thinking about its reception, right? Like you haven't, you haven't set pen to paper. Nothing has happened. You just have the idea, right? And then you start thinking all things like, oh no, like so that's gonna be really good, so I can get it to the. And then you think like, oh, if I'm gonna get get it to the to the to this agent, so they can actually see it. And like, oh, what if nobody actually likes it? And then then I've written this thing, and then nobody wants it. And then I guess that means I have to write another one. But but like at that point, I guess I'll probably just have to give up. And so like you start going down this train of of all the things that could happen that are all bad if you actually like make the thing and and finish it. And uh, and then you just don't. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it, it's there's also a flip side to that though. Which is the fear of success, right? So it's not it's not actually about it's not actually about all the bad things that could happen. It's just that things are going to happen and you'll have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that means change. That means you having to do things that you currently aren't doing. Uh, so if you make a game that you really believe in and you think has the potential to succeed, um, then you're going to market that game. Mm-hmm. Are you currently marketing games? Is that a thing that you spend your time doing? No, that's a whole new thing, right? Um, it's going to be a lot of work. What about customer service? What about managing the income from the game and the accounting and the business side of stuff, right? Or trying to make deals with platforms. Like those are all huge changes in your life. And it's far easier to just keep on doing nothing because you're used to that. You're used to what you're currently doing, right? Um, and, and it's like, it's a, whether it's a fear of failure or a fear of success, all in all, it's it's a, a fear of change um, and of just sort of breaking up the the status quo. Mm-hmm. But ca- kind of on the to the point of self handicapping. So this is something that you'll see with uh, like like uh, college students quite a bit. The idea of like getting a like having a really capable student who then gets a you know a bad grade on an exam, but they didn't study at all for it. Uh, because if you don't study at all, then you end up in a scenario where, where if it goes well, then you can sort of pat yourself You're on smart. the back for how, for how smart you are. And if it goes poorly, you have a perfect excuse, which is that you didn't study. So either way, everything goes according to plan and you don't have to confront any problems. Yeah, or, or right? you decide or convince yourself that you don't like the professor, don't like the discipline at all. I mean, I'm, I'm very guilty of this for basically anything that wasn't science in my entire my entire educational career, but in particular, uh, in, cause in, in before college, I could get away with doing bad work. Uh, but once I was yeah. in college, I couldn't. And so then the way that I excused the fact that all of my worst grades were, were in my humanities courses and you know, all these other things that weren't my science things 
was because I was like, they're just making me do this. You know, I got the other stuff. So I would rather. I don't care about that. I did. Plus those are just dumb disciplines anyways. Who yeah, needs it's like, them? it's not, you know, it's not something that I, that I care <laughs> about. Right. And, uh, and it was very easy to just convince myself that the reason that I was doing poorly in those is because I shouldn't have to take them in the first place. And it was basically me taking a stand. Right. Yeah. So think about what this means in the context of, of having what you believe to be really, really great game ideas that you never finish. Right. It's that you get to. You get to capture the upside of feeling like you're an amazing game developer Yep. without any of the downside of potentially releasing a game that doesn't I don't even go, think you right? have to – yeah, I don't even have to have the release part, right? Because if, if you stop at the idea, you haven't actually done any of the work because there's a huge amount of work between the idea and then trying to sell the thing, you know? I mean, if right. a fucking enormous amount of work, and especially if you actually haven't done any of it, then most of that work up front is going to be you learning things. Yeah. And make so, stuff that is going to be bad because you haven't done it before. And so I think that's also where a lot of the fear comes from is you have you have or can come from is you have an idea, you're a creative person. It is it it may be a really good idea, but when it comes to execution, you don't know how to do it. And you're afraid that the thing that you execute is going to not live up to what you imagine it to be. And you're you're right, actually. Mm-hmm. Right? It never does. It never it does. Literally never can. <laughs> it literally never can. It never can, but especially at the beginning when you have it done the the actual construction of the thing, whatever it is, um, because you don't know how to do it. It can't live up to that, right? Uh, and you, I mean, you see this with with every discipline. You see this with you know novelists having because because like any creative person who's always wanted to do something, always wanted to write novels, always wanted to make games, whatever. They got that handful of like their dream projects in their brains, right? That they've been like churning on for sometimes even decades, you know, right? And then if they ever get the chance to finally sit down and work on it, if they work on one of those things. That thing you've been dreaming about and imagining forever, but you don't have the skill yet to pull off anything even approximately close to that. Uh, yeah. yeah, like every word you type, of course you're not going to do it. You're going to start word. doing anything and be like, "Oh yeah. my god, I'm terrible!" Right? Well, the, and yeah. Uh, yeah, the reality is, it's it's far messier uh, when you're actually doing when you're bringing that thing truly to life than it seems like it should be uh, in your mind ahead of time. So, you know, even for us, like when it comes to like, let's put some roofs on buildings, for example, in Crashlands 2, uh, because we want to we hit this particular target of like, you know, we, we want it to be the case that you can actually go into a thing and that you can have that sense of creating a home space or whatever else. The reality is, you know, it's taken us a good couple of weeks to get all this working. And the whole time. Well, months for the. All it's been it's been six, six weeks, weeks. Yeah. from the time we said, like, let's let's get the first like floors and walls down to. Because at the very beginning, Sam showed me a, a, a mock-up. He was like, "I want this." Like he had like a little like a little image of a building, a mm-hmm. cool little like cute little cabin out in the weird you know Willowope alien wilderness, made up of like alien plant parts and stuff. He's like, "I want this is what I want." And I was looking at, it, I was like, "Okay, I mean, it's just like a little. That's like a little bit farther ahead than what we've done in the past, you know." So maybe like a, a week to get like the first structure of the walls and stuff and then like another week to kind of figure out like the roofs and you know boom two weeks nope and then six weeks later mm-hmm. and like what we just talked about there's jank in this thing yeah there's a lot of jank and in importantly this thing. the whole time we're working on this thing uh you know because we i think we, we do a good job internally of this interesting balancing point where where oftentimes the person who is who has said like hey i you know i want to, i want to do this i really want this to be the way that uh, that this shakes out, as you see the other people who have to do the work required to execute on that. Whether it's in my case, like a you know art pipeline tooling that I ask Adam to do, or like this roof thing that I ask Seth to do. At some point, when you're talking through some of the problems, it's totally natural to be like, "Should we do this?" Because it seems like this is like way it's more big. than we, yeah, way more than we thought it was. And I don't know if that's okay or not. You know, and I think part of it is if you're working solo, it's so much easier to fall into this particular trap of like either way taking over so much more than you actually can do in any reasonable capacity or uh, not having a system in place where you actually do get that additional feedback from people where they're like, no, 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 you can do it. And it is very important that you do this, right? Um, more so than just saying like, you know, what, it's okay to give up. And sometimes it is. It's perfectly reasonable to go down a road and be like, yeah, fuck this. But if you do it as a team, then you have to give up together. Yes. Or if you're thinking to yourself like, oh, this seems like a lot of work. I kind of don't want to do it. Then you have to convince the rest of your team that that's enough of a reason. Right. Which like it often isn't. Um, 
I mean, this, oh man, this just comes right back to like, this is a structural problem, right? Mm -hmm. It reminds me of like, so I, I started working out at the gym this week, you know, for the first time in 14 months, I'm at, I'm at the gym. Uh, and we like, we built a home gym here in our house and early, we like, we got a bunch of, you know, equipment. We got a rowing machine and a barbell and some, some dumbbells and stuff. Um, and like, I've had the, I've had the option to like at any moment of any day, walk into that gym and do a workout, right? <laughs> like I, I could have been working out eight hours a day if I wanted to, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But I didn't. In fact, I went months without working out in that gym that I built. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, why? Uh, well, because of, because of how easy it is to just walk away from a workout, right? Um, I, there's no prep. So if I, if I'm now, so now that I'm going to the gym, I'm planning it out. I've got it scheduled and I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to like, this is my, this is my gym time. And I go there and now that I'm there, I'm there for a half hour and it's, you know, and if I want to leave, I've got to, you know, gather my stuff and hop in the car and drive back home. So there's a cost to leaving as well. And so I think what's, what's hard about doing solo work is there is no cost to abandoning things. You don't have to convince anybody of anything. You can just walk away at any moment mm-hmm. instantly, um, which means it's just way harder to commit to stuff. I still don't think that's it, though. I think this it, this this it, problem. I mean, that is this, that's all things. Definitely, those are all real things, right? But I think what the question asker is getting at is 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 the trouble starting, right? It's go, it's going from the idea to actually then doing anything, right? Well, I think and, what's what I'm seeing in the question is. The is the asker says, you know, when they work on a project and they find a, an idea that seems really good, they immediately stop working on it. Mm-hmm. The implication is that they keep working on bad projects that they aren't interested in, which I don't think is true. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I don't uh, know. that I mean, would be wild if that it's was hard the to know case, what's going on know? here. But I, I think yeah. there's a there's a there's a concept that my my wife has talked to me a lot about because she's she's been working on becoming a writer over the past few years, and so she's has a lot of stories similar to this of trying to figure out. Uh, you know, how, how do I go from just wrangling the psychology? Of yeah, because most of it's things. actually psychological. Yeah. Uh, and and as as Seth, as you noted, there's a, a lot of structural components to all of this, right? Uh, but I think one of the one of the core ideas is is that as a person who has played a lot of games, right, then you have you have acquired a, a high level of of taste, meaning like you know what is good, right? And sure, we all have different opinions and so on and so forth. But the the point is, you still like you can you can read a thing and, and you have a certain level of taste, like for for you, your metric of of what makes a good game, right? You also have a certain level of skill, right? There is a gap between skill and taste, mm-hmm. right? Always, there always always is, no matter what you're doing. And the less time you spend upping the skill, right, but upping the taste instead. So if you're spending all of your time like learning about game development, learning about game design, learning about games, playing games, right? You keep on upping your taste meter. You just keep on going, right? Because everybody you, around you, like all these large companies, like they keep making better and better mm-hmm. games. Yeah. Well, even, and even if they didn't, your understanding <laughs> gets deeper and deeper the more you interact yeah. with them, right? So, yeah. so your capacity to understand what's good keeps on going up. But skill doesn't rise along with your knowledge. It's, not, it's just not a thing that happens, right? And so that, that gap can keep getting bigger, and you're just kind of always chasing it with doing, right? And if you end up – you can end up in a trap where if that gulf gets big enough, then every time you start working on a thing, then you – as you get into it, you start to then bear witness, right, to the gulf between, in your mind, your ability to execute and what is actually good, like what you imagine the thing being, Right. And as the idea gets better of the thing you're working on, whether it's a story idea or whether it's a hook in a game or whatever, the the idea of what that means to be good crystallizes, right? But your skill didn't change. Your ability to execute didn't change. And so now you start having this fear of now that I know what this thing is and I can imagine how good this thing would be, right? This is now the fear starts to creep in about like, but like, can I, can I do this? You know, like, I think, I think and, you, and you start judging everything against it. It's almost like, you know, when you walk, if you walk across a, a rope bridge or something like that, where you're high up and they say, don't look down. Yeah. Right? right. This is the same thing because the reality is like, you've managed to get yourself up to a point uh, of some sort of height with regard to the, you know, the idea or whatever else. And and the issue is that if you look down and see how high up you actually are. Yeah. You panic. Uh, you panic. Right. It's a wily coyote situation. Yeah. yeah, you just you actually just need to <laughs> you need to just be focused on what is exactly the next 
thing to be doing and and not and not have these routine moments of zooming so far out which is very hard to do. It's an easy thing to say, but again, it's a well, very hard thing to do. I, kind of relating this to my, my sort of like origins in making games, I, I actually can relate to this because my first game that I made was this fucking enormous Sky game Roller. that I had, been, I had been designing it for years, but I had no ability to make games. Um, and I really believed that like this game is going to be incredible. I think looking back now, you know, 10 years later at the concept, it wasn't like it wasn't going to be even probably good. Um, but I worked, I worked on it as my first game and I worked on it for a whole year. And there was a point where like, I kind of probably bought into the sunk cost, you know, fallacy of it where like six months in, I was like, I don't think this is that good, but maybe if I keep going, then I will find out how to make it good. But I only made it worse, you know, over the, over the next six months. Um, and it wasn't really until I said, okay, you know what? I don't think I can make this game right now. It's too big. It's too complicated. I don't have the, the skills. But I took the skills from that first year and I started making games that I didn't care about. Mm-hmm. I started making three-day, five-day games. I would just spend a week making things. And uh, because I didn't care about those games in like a, oh my God, this is my passion project dream game, they, I thought about them more as like, as learning opportunities and a tools for me challenge. to yeah and weirdly like some of those games actually did kind of well mm-hmm. uh uh because i was not emotionally invested in them and so i just thought about it as a, like an experiment to see what i could do with it right so like one of them was a bacteria game that i released on the amazon app store um uh, which that would have been like, like 2012 or something 12 or something yeah and like it it ended up making like thousands of dollars, um, mm-hmm. which like doesn't you know that's not an astronomical amount of money, but also I mean like, it is for the it Amazon kind of is store. though you know, mm-hmm. um, and so and it, it took it took five days to make it, and it wasn't like a passion project, but I learned a ton from it. I got to hook up with the Amazon App Store and figure out how that thing worked, um, and and when I saw the reviews, they didn't hurt me. Because the mm-hmm. the game wasn't something that I felt reflected who I am as a person, you know. It was just like a fun thing that I put together. Right? Well, and it and it's because it, part I think one of the really big challenges with this, with the whole like skill and knowledge gap, is also accurate understanding of that gap, I, sort of accurate diagnosis, right? Because if you know, if you know exactly how your vision and and your execution uh, mismatched, right, and you know why then when somebody describes that in a review, because that's what they'll do, right? They'll be like, oh, I didn't like the art or I didn't like the music or I didn't like whatever, right? Then you'll be like, yeah, I know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It and could have been, oh, yeah, right? I missed that and bar. Then, <laughs> and that's it. And, uh, and, and especially, I think it's really easy for people who, uh, we'll just serve for anybody, uh, as, you're, as you're imagining the, the, the making the thing and you're, and you're putting all this time and all this thought, the thing is still feels like it represents you, right? And it's really hard to accurately... Uh, to accurately measure the quality of your work just by yourself, right? And, mo- and I, I don't want to say most, but a lot of creative people uh, will assume that their work is worse than it is, and often yes. by a very wide margin. Yeah. And that that further increases the perception of the gap, right? Because now not only is there always a gap anyway, but you've amplified it by lying to yourself about your skill so that you feel like – and this, this is also where confidence comes from is going the other way, Right. When you lie to yourself about and think that you're really good when you're not, right? When you're mm-hmm. inaccurately measuring that way, you close that skill gap. And now all of a sudden, like the thing you imagine, the thing that you created, like are the same thing. And now you feel great, right? Uh, so, so being able to accurately measure the quality of your work is really, really important. And, and, and that's Which does easy really come say. from and it not does, an easy thing to do. Well, there's no that there's, does, the only way to do it is to sunshine this shit, right? Which is to like you have to get your dev projects, put them on itch io or something while you're working on it. You know, like have have people actually play the damn thing because, like, as far as like an antidote for all this stuff we're talking about, um, well, have have strangers play it. I think is what you mean. Honestly, though, like even if you they watch a friend, um, well, no, because like it it, it is. Getting feedback from friends and family is so fraught with emotional landmines because they aren't in, they they aren't invested in it, but they know that you oh, yeah. are. I'm saying they I know that you care. It is, yeah. but like I'm saying that if you if you're getting no feedback at all, it's still I would argue still way better to even have a family member, a close friend, even someone who doesn't give a shit about games, 
at all to just watch them interact with the thing because it's not about the specific feedback you're getting there, but it's just about the process and the practice of, you know, airing your laundry basically, which is like, here's this thing I made and getting used to just like, you know, hitting people with it and just having to sit with the reaction that they give you. Yeah, it is. It is still better because I know something else that, that happens for, for creative people who are, who are self-doubting is that if they show their work to somebody who they know cares about them, right, then it doesn't matter what the other person says if it's positive because they don't trust it because they'll – because mm, somebody, who's, yeah, somebody who is mismeasuring that gap of where their skill actually is and they think it's a lot lower than that, then they believe it's lower than that, right? They have to be convinced otherwise. And somebody that they know likes them mm. cannot convince them otherwise because they'll be like, they'll say, well, you have to say that in their mind, right? No matter – Honestly, nothing drives me crazier than when somebody asks for feedback and then denies the feedback as a lie. Like, oh my God. <laughs> right. But you're, you're just saying that. that. You're just saying that but to make makes, me feel better. But it does make sense <laughs> because that is actually that 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 nicety, right? In like the derogatory sense, right? That nicety is something that we've all been trained to do. Right? We've all been trained to say like uh if if feedback is negative, don't give it. If you have nothing nice to say, say nothing at all. And and that and that critique is equivalent to saying something bad and all this kind of stuff. Right. And so, yeah, this is like, it's, it's fair for it to drive, to drive you wild. Right. But it also is a completely understandable thing that people do because they've been trained to do it their whole fucking lives. And then it also makes sense why then you as a creator who has this mismatch, don't trust people's, don't trust people's, uh, the judgments they're giving you because you don't know why they're giving you that judgment, you know? Now, Sam, did you tell the story on the podcast? I think you might have of that time when you saw one of Diana's school projects. Yeah, her, yeah, yeah. I mean, just the short of it is like, yeah, I walked into her apartment the first year that we were dating, and there's this this weird looking poster thing that was like a an extra big you know piece of paper that had been printed out, and I just walked in there, and in my typical just uh, kind of. Blunt trying to crack a joke fashion. I was like, what is this hideous piece of garbage? <laughs> and the diner was like, that's my final for my illustration class. I made this. I made this. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, and then you have to do the back pillar. Like, oh, you know. Um, and my wife's response to feedback has always been very inspiring and, and like a really useful thing for me to sort of yeah, have. Yeah, but, but an important like, you know, note there, right, is if you had, if you had known that that was hers – before you, you actually, have, you wouldn't have said it. a thing. You, you probably wouldn't have said anything, or if you did, it would have been really couched and careful, right? Yeah, it, was, it would have been more. I, I hope more precise and less inflaming, you know. Yeah, but, well, uh, and, and just more careful, right? Yeah. And so, and, and it's harder to get at the like, oh, there's like, there's there's something going on here, right? It's just harder to get at that if you're if you're con- if you're playing around mm-hmm. on eggshells and just trying to figure out like, how mm-hmm. do I get the idea across, but make it really clear. This isn't about the person and it's about the thing and, and I'm not judging them and I still like them. Like it, it, it turns into this kind of a thing, which is the nice thing about stranger feedback. It's also the horrible thing about stranger feedback is it, it'll come in that kind of way where someone's just like, I hate this. And that's their response to it. Right. Yep. This is dumb and hideous. They don't yeah. care for your feelings at all, which yep. is great. And yeah, terrible. but it's, it's yeah. horrible, but it is, it's, it's honest. But it's honest. <laughs> it's horrible and honest. Well, it's it's honest about how they feel, you know. Yeah. Um, so and that's yeah, the other part too. Is, is when other people evaluate evaluate your work, and we've talked about feedback a lot in the podcast because it's worth coming back to. But uh, you know, when when somebody, it's really easy to take what somebody says in a review or any other context as just a fact about the thing that you made, right? Mm-hmm. When it's a fact about the response of the person who observed it, right? That's 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 what it is. And, and there's still like – all these things are tangled together because because a person who can't accurately judge their own work, if a stranger then says it's bad because that stranger doesn't like that kind of work, right, then you, now there's just feeds into your idea that you're bad, right, mm-hmm. instead of being able to recognize that for what it is. Um, and so so to me, the, like, the hardest part of all of this, but the thing that is required, which again is easy to say and, and really hard to do, is to, is to try to find ways to, to understand – how you're judging your work and why you're judging it in that way, right? And and see if you can get at are you being truthful? Mm-hmm. Because there's there's also this kind of weird pride that people take in like undercutting, right? Their their own skill and their own achievements and so on, right? Um, but that's just as bad as going the other way. Yeah, as Midwesterners, it's something we've had to overcome. Yeah, you know the idea of the idea of saying like I made a really good thing 
And mm-hmm. that's just that's that's just fine to say, as opposed to just being like, no, no, it's nothing. I I, I, I barely been I barely been putting time into it. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, and that's true. Like we, I mean, we we've all been going through that too. Like level head is, is the first thing that we made. Where I like I look at it and I just say like level head is fucking good. It is yeah. a good good mm-hmm. game. Crashlands is good, but I like I know like that was still being created at the time where like. I didn't feel like we knew what we were doing at all. Mm-hmm. And and I know about all the jank that's in there, you know. And like I just there's something about that one. Like it it was being created while we were still like really on the slope of like scaling up, right? And I know that. Uh but Levelhead was like I feel like we we'd fucking nailed it. Was it was a coming of age, you know. Yeah, and, and I th- and, and I and I truly believe I'm accurately diagnosing it when I say that like we nailed that thing, right? Here's the thing I think that in a I guess I'll say something that's, I think, very true for me that might sound horrifying uh, as a person working into all this creative stuff, but I think it's actually comforting, which is that imposter syndrome doesn't go away in the sense that even when we just started working on these buildings six weeks ago, I've never constructed a – I haven't drawn architecture, like actual – tried to make a whole building that looks good, let alone a modular system of architecture with a modular roof system – that tiles mm-hmm. together well and looks good. And part of my own practice with art is basically recognizing that the first step is always just feeling like you can't possibly do the thing. And it doesn't go you, away. You'll, yeah, because you know what a building looks like. And as soon as you draw your first building, you're like, that's that not, looks like not, that's yeah. not it at all. And, and then you're like, like, oh, I'm terrible. <laughs> yeah, and it just doesn't yeah. go away. I think what happens is that you, you just develop enough um, trust in your process to recognize that that's just the first part of what this stuff is. It's yeah, always well, I think just the you first also, part. And you also develop a, more of a distance between, you know, self and, and action, you know? Mm-hmm. So in the case where like we're saying, where now you draw a building and it's a piece of shit, you're like, yeah. When, this is the first when, one I fucking drew, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's a piece, it's not about me. It's about the fact that, that I don't have this skill yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you start adding this, 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 yeah, for me, this is true. It is important to, to say uh, that it, that it doesn't go away. And like, so, you know, I've been doing the, like the, the dev chat newsletter and then I've been doing some streams and, and making those into videos and stuff. And I'm doing it for fun because, uh, it just seemed like a, a f- it just seemed like a fun thing to do. Right. But it doesn't stop the fact from every time I then like publish, uh, an, an article or publish and put out a dev chat, right. That when, like when I put out an article and then I get like a hundred reads on it. Right. Which for some people is a lot, but for the stuff that we're used to is not very many. Right. Then, I can't help but have that first set of thoughts be like, like, is this bad? You know, like, is this, like, like what, what is going on here? Right. And when I put out a dev chat newsletter and I don't hear from any of the readers, right. Cause I can see our open rates. I know that they're open by a lot of people. Um, but when I, but when nobody says anything back, then it's the same deal again. I'm, I'm like, is anybody even reading this? You know, like, is, and, uh, and, and the, and I always have to like get back to the point where actually I don't know. And, and maybe they're not right. But I'm not doing it to get the broadest readership, right? I'm doing it because I think it's fun and interesting. And I hope that people read it. And it's always kind of a bummer and always makes me like – it always adds some doubt in when I but don't. Isn't that also just about that. anchor points? Like like let's say oh, – yeah, absolutely. Like let's say you're a, you're a tweet, a tweet, a tweet, tweeter. You're a Twitter person, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you've got like a million followers, you know? And like maybe over the past week – the uh, the tweets that you've put out have only gotten like a few thousand likes a piece. Mm-hmm. You're gonna mm-hmm. look at those and be like, "Wow, am I just really losing it?" Like, yeah, it's all am it's I all on my way, treadmill, right? Am I on my way out? You know, but this way, this way, the accurate diagnosis part is so important, right? Because like, because for me, it's the same deal with Sam. Is I can't help but have that that mm-hmm. that feeling of uncertainty and that feeling that, that basically the imposter syndrome, right, uh, all the time. But I know that if I if I didn't sit down and think about it for a moment longer, when I think about like the dev chat. I'm, I'm popping that with random stuff and I'm not asking people to reply to me via email because that's a lot of people and people write a lot when they write by emails. And I, I don't want to have to read that much as much as I want to hear from people. If, if I get even just 10 emails back, I'm gonna be like, Oh my God, this is now my week. Right. So, mm-hmm. so I'm intentionally locking people out of the most convenient way for them to reply to the format that they've been sent to thing. Right. So it shouldn't be so like, so there shouldn't be a surprise. It would be surprising if I got lots of feedback in the mm-hmm. other channels, right? And same deal with my, when I post a, a blog post. If I'm posting a blog post about some like niche thing about JavaScript, right? Like there's a tiny audience for that, first of all. And second of all, they have to find it, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. They have to find it. And so, yeah, it's, you I know, just, it's, yeah, it's, a, and, but yeah, but I think that point about the anchor point is, is really, 
key because because the fact that we have built this studio with lots of players, my perception of what the numbers mean, I have yeah. to keep on reminding myself is different for the stuff that I'm making for other purposes because yeah, you're absolutely right. Like what, what you you might watch a YouTube video that someone's put up uh, that has like 30 views or whatever, right? And that's actually really good for somebody who is like otherwise doesn't get views or has like worked their way up to 30 from zero, right? That's actually really good. That's 30 did. people. That's <laughs> yeah. 30 times more than the number of people you are, right? Who are like watching the stuff that you do, right? Uh, that's like teaching a college class, right? Yeah. That's like people. teaching a college class. Exactly. Like the, yeah. the exposure is actually huge, right? Um, but I'm so used to these really big numbers. I always have to like, I always have to really consciously work my way down to like, this is fine, right? This actually like makes sense that, yeah. the, that the numbers look like this. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I, I would say that if, if it's the case that you're experiencing this imposter syndrome in this way, then, then I would simply say, welcome. <laughs> right. Cause that means you're doing it. That means you're doing it. And the thing is you have to just, whether it takes, you know, whether it's just after the next project that you can carry it further and maybe actually show it to some people or it's 10 projects from now, um, it doesn't matter, but you like, you just got to keep making stuff and at some point do the next part beyond the imposter syndrome thing and figure out some way to do that. You always have to, you have to, there always has to be some progression into the, to the uncomfortable mm -hmm. step. Yeah. Um, and like, well, like yeah. Seth said with the games that he was making, he just, he realized that that was actually the key part. And so he made very small projects that would allow him to explore some place of discomfort. Yeah. Lower your and bar. Then, and then be done. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like skill, try to find ways to skill up. Um, but yeah, but I think it's also important to note that that we don't know how to diagnose like exactly what is going on for mm -hmm. this question asker for how they perceive this problem, right? Yeah, because so we, we just hit like we nine hit, different. We hit a options. lot of topics because this problem <laughs> is is a, is both a common and vague one, right? And that it, it doesn't have an obvious single source. And in fact, even though we talked about things like imposter syndrome and all this kind of stuff, like my imposter syndrome does not look like Sam's. They are not the same. They don't have the same roots, right? And, uh, and it is the most important thing for all of this is to try to find ways to just evaluate yourself and why you are responding that way. Cause when you go to other people, the best they can do is guess based on their own experience, which is nothing like your experience, no matter how close it seems. Right. And, and moving from the place where you're, where you're seeking that from outside to seeking it from inside mm -hmm. is the That's key. That's the key. That's the key. All right. Well, I hope that helps. We went deep on that one, and that's all the time that we have. <laughs> uh, so uh, we'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Jen Coster, for putting the podcast together, and thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, just go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the community Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.